Hey team, welcome to episode 66 of Transition Talk, where we talk about dental transitions and how to navigate the sometimes messy path to practice ownership. In this episode of Transition Talk, we are going to talk about a unique situation, the office sharing arrangement where two or more independent practices operate out of one physical location. In day-to-day practice, this can seem like a group or a partnership, and it can allow you to run more efficiently. There can be a number of reasons why you might do this. But in actual transition, how does it work? It can be tricky. Will someone want to buy your practice with competition literally right next door? Will the bank care that you share equipment or employees or space? We're going to tackle all of that in today's episode. But before we get to the meat of the episode, hello, Mr. Loretto. Miss Radcliffe, good morning to you. Good morning. Good happy Tuesday. Yes. You got some stories for me? I do. Did you ever have like a good room sharing? Did you ever like, did you have a roommate in college or post-college or like, a, did you and Rox have like a rough start when you started cohabitating? Give me a story. You know, the, on the Roxanne side, no. We've had a pretty good. We dated a little bit to kind of test those waters, but I can go back to college and I can tell you I had some rough issues. So I dated a girl for about seven years. And so we decided to move in together and we got an apartment and we had the biggest fight within the first few minutes of moving in. (laughs) I put on the wrong set of sheets. It was like two sets of sheets. Apparently I put on the wrong set of sheets. And after seven years, we lasted a few weeks. And I ended up having weeks. Yeah, maybe it was a couple of months, but it did not work. Did you go on any long vacations together before that? Or was it? Yes. No. Yeah. yeah. Family vacations, everything together. No, we were, and this was like a high school relationship that, I mean, it was pretty deep. So then what that led me, I was at school down in Austin. And so of course I'm living there. So I have to move out. I did some couch surfing at three different places. <laughs> so, so in school, I was a bartender. It's shocking. And uh, first, a couple of nights at the cocktail waitress's apartment. So I'm on their couch. And then I moved to another customer's. I went to his couch And then I went to another friend, uh, his bedroom, and then that ended. And then uh, I went to another friend's couch. And this was all within four months. Oh, my goodness. You're like a gypsy. Yes, yes. So uh, I quickly learned the challenges with living with other people. And I quickly realized that you need to really shop your roommates before you move in. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I will tell this story because my husband does not listen to this podcast. He thinks it's amazing. You all listen to this podcast. But... So when I moved in with Chris, we moved in right before we got married. I know, bad, whatever. And you're in the South, that's like not allowed. But we moved in right before we got married and just for pure like logistical reasons. And he is like super tidy. Like our house is always show ready. Like if we were going to sell our house, you could walk through it. Like just how he works. But I learned very quickly that like I am clean and he is tidy. He likes everything to be up, but like doesn't necessarily like to like clean everything all the time. Interesting. Um, I also, he tried multiple times to buy me shoe racks. He was like, if I put a shoe rack by the door and I was like, you can put it by the door. My shoes will never be on it. Like, (laughs) so like his, his, I finally, like it's part of marriage. I've just been like, okay, Christy, just pick up your shoes and take them to the closet. But for the large majority of the first five years of our marriage, I thought it might end because my shoes were everywhere. And he just tried to buy me like multiple shoe racks thinking that would solve (laughs) the problem. So there's an art of learning to live. With someone, yes, there is. There is. There there are benefits, you know, but there's benefits for sure. Sure, there's been a few nights of arguments too, and so, um, 
which is true of this situation too, right? Professionally, before we jump into why and like what that looks like, I want to kind of paint the picture if you, for some reason, are not familiar with this setup. So what we traditionally see when we're talking about an office sharing situation, there are two doctors who have one space, right? So imagine you walk into the front doors of a practice, you're in a waiting room, there's a desk, and there's essentially like two doors, right? And you can go to the left or you can go to the right. And what looks like just two entrances is actually two physically different practices that from a patient's perspective look like one. There might be some shared staff, maybe a couple front desks. There may be, you know, a piece of equipment, maybe a piano or something in the back that both providers have access to. Maybe there's a shared break room back there. But for the most part, it is two distinct spaces that you are kind of cohabitating. And so that's what we're talking about. And that can look a little bit differently, but very kind of two different, one address kind of, that's the concept we're going here. And so that it's important to know that they're not merged, right? We're not talking about a partnership situation or we report on one entity return. This is two separate practices. And that's the uniqueness of what this is because it's great and it can create some benefits and it can be just a pure necessity, honestly, in some parts of the country. It was super common back in the 80s and 90s. And honestly, where we see it the most today is in like West Coast or more really condensed urban areas like the Seattle's and the California's where space is at a premium and it's costly. And so providers are doing what they can to kind of make places work and hopefully gain some efficiencies. So when you, we've seen this often, right? Not, it's not every call, but we do see it often. What are the reasons that people have done this in your experience? Like, give me some of the examples and why the people have said, Hey, this is why I created this. Yeah. I mean, when you look at space or trying to figure out, okay, I need four operatories, you need four operatories. That typically may be a 2000 square foot. So if we can condense this into a 3,200 or 3000 square foot, 2,500, 2,800 square foot, it's just going to lower my cost. Hey, I have a good idea. Let's share some of these team members. Hey, I have a good idea. Let's share maybe some of these large equipment purchases. You know, this just makes a lot of sense. And so the reality is this was popular. Yeah, I think you hit it around the head. A lot of you'll see West Coast. So this high rent area all up and down California, the west of the fives up into Seattle. I've seen this in Manhattan. I've seen this in even some large buildings like in Chicago that have higher rent. So that's typically kind of the why and the concept of what they are trying to achieve there. It just isn't always, they just haven't really thought that through on the back end. Yeah, I've seen it too. And it seems like I'm sure it's still done for younger kind of just entering their professional career. But I oftentimes see it a lot with kind of the older, more established doctor set where they kind of hung the shingle and the hospital building or whatever, and there was a huge space and they couldn't take up all of it. And so two buddies got together, two people got together and kind of went and did this. So we tend to see it the more established and we're helping kind of a buyer bite into that space. That's kind of been at least my experience thus far. And so that's kind of the perspective that I've seen and just kind of some of the challenges because there's a huge amount of benefits, right? Like from a cost sharing perspective, but there are some unique hurdles that people have to clear to get there. So we'll get to those at the tail end of this. Let's talk about what are some of the positives, right? From a staffing perspective, let's talk there first, right? If I'm a seller and I'm saying, hey, the benefit of this cost sharing is shared staff, Mm -hmm. right? What does that look like and kind of what their goal is and what you've actually seen in reality as far as like saved cost, right? Because I think that that's an important concept too. So I had one other thing too, and I'll get to the cost. So another time this will happen too, is if I, I'm the investor and I build this 3000 square foot, 
but I just can't, I'm not getting my practice big enough mm, to, yeah. to bring you in. So yeah. I've built something a little bit more than I can quote unquote fill up. And so maybe you have a practice and maybe it's a smaller practice and your lease is up and I'll say, Hey, why don't oh. you just come in and do that? So that that's another reason that you'll see sometimes these transactions happening. And the idea with the team cost theoretically does make sense that we're just going to share this team. It's going to be efficient. But the reality is when you paint that picture where people come in that front door and they go left and right, typically what you're going to have is a front desk that may be answering the same phone line. I don't know. Maybe two different lines. You could have, you know, this, this person here is going to be in charge of my accounts receivable. This person over here is in charge of your account receivable. And you might really, when it really boils down to, you might like share one employee. Yeah. Okay. That's at $40,000 or $45,000, you know, a year. So really is that your main goal here is just to share one employee. And it just sounds like such a great idea. Mm-hmm. And that's why you won't see as many today is because the reality is they, they don't turn out to be, yeah. they have a lot more challenges than they do benefits. I think you're right. I think we do see that with kind of the smaller practice that's kind of looking for a space. Maybe it's a ortho startup and there's a pedo office. And so there's a lot of extra space. So they like plop their ortho practice in the middle, kind of that referral relationship, but they're totally separate, right? Like mm-hmm. I think we do see that or mergers where there's two smaller practices and they kind of think they can join forces and kind of help some efficiencies. And honestly, in these high rent areas, it probably does help some. It probably helps more with rent than the other areas that they think it's going to help like staff for sure in those areas for sure so yeah absolutely okay so one of the five reasons of ownership that we preach is equity right like being able to own and have equity in kind of what you build and so we always want to make sure that we are thinking about that and thinking about an exit strategy and this is for those of you who are listening who are buying or who have only owned five or 10 years. Like, I just feel like being kind of forward thinking about what is that going to look like when I want to exit this is always really helpful. So everything we're going to talk about today from a transition arm, right? It sounds negative, right? It sounds like these are problems, but I think a problem is only a problem if you don't have a solution or a plan to like fix it. Like these are just facts about a situation that you need to understand that they might in operations work beautifully and not be an issue at all. But in transition, they become something that two people and a bank are going to say, ooh, what about that, right? So all everything we're talking about today is not a negative or to dissuade you from doing a shared space, right? Because again, there are some times when it's just your reality, but it's very much a, hey, consider this have it in your mind, have a plan, and know that it's just something that you're going to have to work through at some point and and be as smart about it as you can. So I just want to make that disclaimer because it'll sound like we're going to talk a lot of negative right now, but it's not negative. No, I mean, I talk about this a lot where, you know, when you own a business, in this case, we'll call it a stock. I mean, you're, you're always trying to grow your stock. And so the reason you're trying to grow it is because one day you're going to pull the equity out. So that solution needs to be thought out Mm -hmm. at the time you're doing a merger, at the time that you're doing a a cost sharing or space sharing arrangement is what is my business going to be able to grow to and how am I going to be able to pull the equity out of that? So, you know, you get into these things, you're, you're obviously, in this case, if it's a space sharing arrangement, then obviously there's a building involved. So that may be a lease that, that our names are both on, or it could be a building where we have an equity position, or it could be 
where, Christy, you're the established owner and I'm the newer one that just came in, or maybe you're the original investor, so you own the piece of real estate. And maybe that wasn't even offered to me, but now you own that real estate. So if I put that question back onto you, what challenges have you seen with a transition with the building? Yeah, so the building has been really a function of ownership and the ability to own, right? As a buyer kind of coming in, what I want to understand is if there's someone else in the space who does what I do, right? Whether it's the same they're general or it's the same specialty, or even if it's not, I want to know that my space is secure. And if I am not the landlord and if the other owner in that office sharing arrangement is the owner of the building, the biggest risk for me is that that person decides at some point that they want to transition or they want to sell the building or they want to take over my space. Right. And so I don't have that, right? And normal, if you're just kind of a single office and you're not space sharing, your landlord probably needs you in that space, right? They want you in that space. So there's, even though you're leasing, there's a little bit more security there. So I think the biggest risk and the biggest concern that buyers have is how do I know that I have this space and that other person who owns it isn't going to kick me out or want the space or their buyer who they're going to sell to down the road is not going to want my space and have the right to that building. So what oftentimes aggravates that is there's oftentimes not a lease in place because it's kind of a handshake or, hey, we work side by side. So like, we'll just split whatever it is and, you know, things are not formalized. So that's kind of been the other challenge there. Yeah. And I also think too, just like on the space that we're in this case, if I'm the nervous buyer and I'm coming in and you own the building, I'm always just nervous about just the size. Yeah. So if I'm buying into a five chair practice, that's on the right side. I mean, obviously I'm limited. I can't, I I can't, what if I want to go to six? What if I want to start marketing and bring in an associate and independent contractor that can come in and do certain procedures? There's lots of different, I would call it challenges. I'm limited just on the space. Yeah. And the solution there, right? It's not a solution, but it's something to consider. If I'm a buyer buying into an office sharing kind of type of practice, what are the transition plans of other guy who's not leaving? Is that a possibility? Is that something that I need to say, hey, I'm interested in buying your practice when you're ready, right? Because I know I want to expand and I know I'm going to want your space if that's a possibility. If you're a seller and you don't own the building that you're office sharing in, then what you can do right now is have a lease in place that offers you the right of first refusal that you get to assign over to your buyer, right? And that way you have that right of first refusal as, you know, if that your office companion wants to sell the building, you're giving that right so that kind of mitigates that risk, right? And to the person who owns the building, there's a little bit of risk there, but they have a buyer, right? They don't have to sell to your buyer, but they have to offer it to them. And hopefully there's a discussion there about the risks that are, you know, they're present for both of you in that situation. Well, in the end, if buyers are what controlling this because they are so nervous about buying, you know, if the two of us are kind of this mid 50, 60 year old that has relationships with, you know, a couple of thousand patients each and you bring a new buyer and they're going to quote unquote buy me out, mm-hmm. then they're so nervous that my patients are just going to go straight over to you. Yep. Okay. So then let's fast forward that you find a buyer. And that agrees to this space sharing arrangement, they buy, and so now they bought me out. So now that is a partner with you. Doesn't guarantee us that the next person sees this as an opportunity and buys you out. Right. They're equally as nervous. 
So then now all of a sudden, it's almost like you have to create the plan up front. If you're ever going to sell in this space sharing or if you're going to buy in this space sharing, you have to have agreements based on that building and based on that practice that you've got the first right of refusal would be my advice, both from a seller perspective and buyer perspective. Yeah. Let's talk about that competition piece because I think that's important, right? Because that's also the concern is that not only are you buying a practice, but you're buying a practice where there's one literally right next door. And so how does that play? What's the competition like? That's always a big concern of buyers. How do you address that? The thing that I've said this a million times, but you really have to mess it up. So if if you do go in this situation, it's not ideal, but it is something we can overcome. For the most part, those patients are going to stay with you. It's very, very uncommon that you're just going to see patients that never went to the left side of the practice. All of a sudden, new guy comes in, they're just going to go over there. So I would say the first hurdle there, I would say, is let's not worry about that because there's there's literally thousands of patients that are going to test that and have tested that we've seen. Mm -hmm. And so I, I would definitely overcome that. Again, doing chart audits, looking at marketing, looking at new patients, things like that, and be able to say, hey, you're going to be able to, typically the young person's going to come in with a much more aggressive marketing approach and really trying to attract the new patients. Selling doctor next door or the space sharing person next door, like they're fine. Mm-hmm. They get on uh, this little autopilot thing and they become maybe conservative in their treatment planning. And 10 new patients a month is just fine. They're kind of slowing down. So I, I would say on that front, as far as competition, it doesn't really concern me. I completely agree. And I always think like, again, it's like putting yourself in the patient's shoes versus your shoes and your perspective. If I'm a patient walking into your practice, I actually don't know the difference and don't know that you're not already a partnership. Mm-hmm. I'm not walking into your practice and being like, you know, I was going to check in there, but you know what? Now I'm going to go over here, right. right? If I get an ad for the practice and it's the same address, I'm like, oh, that's my practice. Right. Great. Like that's not my doctor, but that's my practice, right? So I also think there's the patient's perception of what you already are. I take my kid to a practice and I have thought my doctor was an owner for the entirety of being there because her name's on the door or whatever. She's not an owner, right? She doesn't. Pretty sure she's not. I talked to her about it the other day, and I was like, oh, I always thought you were an owner. She's like, no. And I was like, well, you need to call me. But, but that's the point. But I think it's just the putting yourselves in the like patient. like As providers, what I've learned is you guys are worried about things that a lot of things matter. Do you Sometimes you're worried about things that, from a patient's perspective, do not matter. Do you know what I mean? They're, like, they don't see things the way you do. And so, like you said, being smart and planning for that is important. Yep. Okay. So I want to talk about equipment. Okay. This is kind of a big hurdle in my world. Like I said, when, we, when I did the setup, typically in a shared office arrangement, our office sharing arrangement, there is a shared piece of equipment. And it could be that there's only one x-ray room or there's right. only one space for the equipment that's big enough. And so you guys come together and say, hey, we're going to split this piece of equipment and we'll just both use it. I've also seen it where one person buys it and the other person uses it like cost per scan or whatever that right. might be, right? The issue here, right, from a transition standpoint, is you are now using that piece of equipment to provide profitability and to provide patient care, and it's an integral part of your practice, but you only own 50% of it, right? And so therefore, what happens, right, and this is oftentimes, like, now it's the first question we ask when we know there's office sharing, but it snuck up on us a couple times early on. The bank does not like that because they want to put a lien when a buyer comes in and buys a practice. They want to put a lien on all the equipment, right? And they want to know that if that buyer stops making payments, they can come in and they can take all that equipment and they will own it. The problem is they will only own 50% of that piece of equipment. And so they need to understand like a bank should and like that is burdensome. They want to know 
How are you repairing it? What's your responsibility if it breaks? What about you? What if you need to replace it? Do you actually have an agreement saying who owns it? Or did you guys just write a check and say it's mine? What happens if you don't own it and you're just paying for cost per scan, right? That should be in your financials. Oftentimes it's not. Those are things that we see in transition that you really have to have documented. It's a hurdle we can clear, but it needs to be a formal agreement between you know, practice A and practice B that, Hey, we're jointly coming in to buy this. We each own 50%. If it breaks, here's how we're going to handle it. If we need to replace it, here's how we're going to handle it. If we sell it, here's how we're going to handle it. All of those things while not fun. And yes, you're going to have to hire an attorney probably to put that together is going to be important if transition is in your horizon or even if it's not, to be honest, but. And it's so rare that we'll see all that just completely tidied up with a true LLC partnership agreement that they own 50% of it. So it's very rare. We're going to see that detail, but yes, absolutely. There's, there's challenges there. And let's think about it from a buyer's perspective. Let's say there is this 50, 50 agreement on this piece of equipment. Maybe it's verbal, maybe it's written, but let's say I'm the new buyer. What's new buyer want? They want new stuff. Yeah. So why would I want to be 50% partner in this piece of equipment that is maybe eight or 10 years old? If I'm going to do that, you know, I want my own piece of equipment. Mm-hmm. So now your cost sharing thing just went out the door. That new cost sharing partner is upset. And by the way, where are we going to put that new piece of equipment? Because typically the way this is laid out, there's only one space. Yeah. So you've got your 10-year-old machine and I want a brand new $120,000 machine but uh, you saw a value on that half. I mean, it just creates so many yeah. hurdles yeah. for us to hit. 100%. And so I just think, again, all of this should be documented if you're doing an offshoring space. Like if we're being technical, we know that in reality and operationally, that's not how it works. But I think it's important that it's specifically for something that's going to be a big, large dollar item, right? Like mm-hmm. your space, if one of you owns and one of you doesn't, like having a lease, like a formal lease with formal cam charges and what am I paying and what's my responsibility, equipment, all of of those things are really important and making clear accounting within your financials of shared employees and kind of how you're handling that. I had a practice once who they shared space, but instead of just paying a rent over, they basically paid for a bunch of different expenses for the other practice and they kept a word document of the cost. And then they would just do this crazy reconciliation every like quarter. But the costs were like also mixed in with their costs, right? So it was like, I don't know, supplies, right? They would buy supplies for the other practice because they shared like a supply room, but they really couldn't like prove what expenses were theirs and what expenses were the other practices. And then they ended up not having any rent because they had paid too many expenses that they had a credit that they used on the years they did. It was hard and we figured it out and the buyer was actually fine with it. But guess who wasn't fine with it? The bank, right? Because that's too, it's an estimate. It's too much, right? So thinking about how you're accounting for shared costs, thinking about like just how is that going to be perceived to someone who's not in the weeds of my word document reconciliation is really, really important. And usually if it's complicated to you, it's probably going to be really, really complicated to someone else. Well, and, and when we're talking about shared employees, one of the things that when you go back to again, the five reasons you must own, you make more money, equity, tax plan, pension planning, and control. One of those five reasons is the pension plan. So you can start preparing for retirement. And when you're sharing employees, you get into these rules that if you're sharing employees, you got to test the entire practice for the pension plan. So that means that, you know, Christy, if we're together in a partnership and you want to be aggressive and save for retirement and you want to, 
you know, run this retirement plan with a profit sharing plan, but I don't because I'm nervous and young and I think I'll just save later. You have to now pick up all those costs because when you test that plan, it has to go together. So yep. again, the conceptual idea is that this makes a lot of sense, but you, man, you got to be on so many wavelengths and just of how all of these things are going to work out and be crystal clear on your vision and how we're going to share all this. I mean, it's got to be completely laid out. Yep. And sometimes those are financial planning. Those are tax planning. You know, those are just personality conflicts that we may have with each other. So just like with your shoes, I mean, you got you got to you got to figure that out. You know what I mean? We got to figure out how we're going to put these shoes uh, <laughs> where where they're going to go because it's going to create some problems. I think I told this story way early, but I told you about Lindsay, my roommate in college, and she had all she always bought like pickles and olives and forgot she bought oh, yeah. them. Always left them in the fridge. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. So you got to figure out what to do with all your extra, pic- extra pickles <laughs> and olives. Okay, so I think we've covered like the big bullets. I think the last thing I want to cover is more of the kind of goodwill kind of the transition like clearly if you are in an office sharing situation and you have like your office companion you know your other partner quote quote partner that you've worked with for the last 20 years and you guys have worked together and you figured out a a flow and ebb of how to share cost and kind of share staff and your practices go together inserting like a new buyer into that it can be challenging, right? It can be easy, but it can also be challenging. And it also poses risk for you, but it also poses risk for your office sharing companion who now, if they're close or not close to transition, now they're probably thinking about it, right? Mm -hmm. Like how does your new buyer impact me and my ability to find a buyer down the road? Like guess best case scenario, my buyer is your built-in buyer, you know, Mm -hmm. five years from now. But I think that's something as as a seller who is considering transitioning, who's in an office sharing situation, I think it just goes back to the communication with that person of what you're thinking about doing, right? Maybe you're five years out and he's seven years out and you're not talking about it, so neither of you really know that, but maybe someone comes along for him and he's it's too early, right? Or and they want something bigger and they don't have it to offer. If you two aren't talking about what your transition plan is, you're potentially missing out on people who might be willing to buy your practice. You're not allowing each other to plan appropriately, right? Maybe you're willing to go one year longer and he's willing to go one year shorter, but if you don't tell him until you're done, right. what we know is that once you make that decision to be done, you're done. And so I just think that communication about how transition plans impact the other party and how entering a new buyer into a relationship that's existed, it's literally like putting a third person into your marriage, right? Like you have processes, you know where the shoes go, like you have all of that and putting someone else in the middle can be challenging. It can be doable, but you have to be considerate of kind of that third person in that relationship. Well, two points there, you know, if two people in a marriage and one person leaves the marriage and they basically are finding the replacement, (laughs) you know what I mean? That's going to be a little bit of a, a bit of a challenge in a really good partnership agreement, which we promote, it will allow the parties uh, that preparation. So if I choose to leave this partnership, Christy, I need to give you notice, you know, a two-year notice. And then if I break that, then you have the right to buy me out and you can buy it out at this significant discount. Therefore, you know, it puts the pressure on both of us to work through our problems. And it pushes me that I just can't make this decision just overnight, you know, where it's just like this big shock. So in a partnership, what I really like is that, you know, we always talk about you're in the boat together and not one side of the boat is leaking. It's yep. always leaking. It's, it's your, always your, leaking. your your side is leaking. That's going to, you know, eventually <laughs> take us down. So there are some really good solutions here. And, you know, obviously, if you're looking to sell, obviously, you want to let your partner know on this space sharing. You want to give them the first option. 
Potentially, you try to time it together. Potentially, you try to find a buyer that would be interested in maybe buying him or her out on one side with the goal of purchasing the other side. So you could do those in our staggered sale. And that would help with those goals. So when we interview this selling doctor or selling doctors in this case, we want to listen to both of their goals and figure out what these hurdles are from a timing perspective. And then now that we've got this buyer, let's get them over that hurdle and let's try to figure out how we're going to transition that out. So, you know, these are hurdles. We, we talk about that a lot, but we can overcome them. Yeah. You know, you know what it comes down to? What's it come down to? Education, communication, <laughs> and being proactive versus reactive. Yeah. I mean, like essentially every episode of Transition Talk, we've kind of come to the same thing. Why are you people still listening? No, just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> That's all we have for today. I think this is a good episode. A lot of you ask for this because this is a common thing that is more common than people act like it is and it has its own set of challenges it's super unique like anything else in transition but like we said just be educated understand both sides of it and communicate with kind of the parties and and bring someone in to kind of help troubleshoot help get out of the box and figure out a a solution because there absolutely is one so thank you for joining us for transition talk today make sure to share the transition love with those who may not know of us yet and of course subscribe wherever you listen to your podcast till next time friends see ya